Hello, everyone, and thanks for joining with us for this week's podcast. As per usual, before we begin our time together, I just want to take a moment to let you know a bit of what's coming up in our community. This week, Sam Seifert begins our new series, While We Wait. And we also wanted to let you know and update you on the result of our special meeting of the members that took place a couple weeks ago. The vote at that meeting approved the transfer of our Dunkley property to the Western Canadian District and it was at 7.3 million. And so we're only needing to pay the carrying costs, which is $680,000. And that is paid over 10 years interest-free, which is great. And so if you need more information or you're even wondering what I'm talking about, you can check previous viewpoints or you can grab an elder or a pastoral staff to answer any questions you might have. And lastly, just a reminder, we are in our June giving challenge, and our goal is to raise $375,000, and these dollars go to our general fund and building fund, which are two key areas for our church and our ability to continue doing powerful ministry out of our church and into our community. So we thank you for prayerfully considering giving to this challenge. The best way to know what's going on at Southview is by checking out our weekly viewpoint, and you can find a link to our viewpoint in the episode description of this podcast, or you can go on Realm and join the group Southview Family Updates, and that will make sure you're always getting the weekly viewpoint in your inbox. And if you're new with us here in this digital space, we would love to hear from you. You can find an online connection card at the bottom of that viewpoint, along with a prayer request form so that we can support and join you in prayer. And additionally, you can always find us on Instagram and Facebook. But now today, no matter how you're joining with us, may each of our hearts be open and expectant. Because God is here and Jesus invites us to bring all that we are and all that we're currently carrying to him. In the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, let's seek the face of God together. Who here enjoys waiting? (laughs) Waiting is like the new swear word, right? You know, I went to this church and the pastor just stood there silent. We were all waiting. Who does he think he is? I was the dentist. I had to wait like two hours to get in. How was that trip to Kelowna? Oh, so long. We had to wait at Golden for all the construction. It was so brutal. How's the prognosis? Ah, still waiting to hear. Did you get the job? 
still waiting. Man, I hate waiting. I hate waiting. I go to Costco. I'm looking for the shortest line that's going to be the quickest. That's why we have kids, right? So you can send them to three different lines and like see which one's going to get there fastest, right? And then you just join them if they get up there quicker enough. Uh, Cammie and I flew uh, to Phoenix last month uh, to celebrate our 25th uh, wedding anniversary. I know, hard to believe, right? We hardly look like we're over 30. <laughs> but we got to the airport, and uh, it's just a game of waiting. You get there super early, you got to go to security, you wait in line at security, you get through security, you got to go to immigrate or uh, border uh, customs, wait there in line. Then you get to your gate, and then you got to wait there. And we were waiting at our gate, and uh, boarding time on our sheet came and went, and nothing, no movement. Our flight time came, and all of a sudden, they would come on the intercom. I was like, hey, sorry for the delay. We're waiting for our first officer to show up. I'm like, great. Like, so we had to wait like another 40 minutes for the first officer to show up. If you want to wait, go to an airport. <laughs> like, it's just a great place to wait. But I think we, uh, uh, this year, even, we've been in a season of kind of waiting and wondering, haven't we? You know, what will Southview be like without uh, our senior pastor and all that is to come? And if you were here last weekend, we had a great weekend of celebration. Uh, 25 years to celebrate Clyde and his family being a part of Southview. Faithful service over those years brought a ton of stability and predictability uh, to this faith community. And all of a sudden, that's now, what's next? What's going on? I don't know about you, but I tend to try to solve things in season of, of waiting. You know, I get frustrated when things aren't moving along at a quick pace. So in my seasons of waiting throughout life, and I'm definitely in a season of waiting right now, I mean, for crying out loud, I have interim in my title. Like, it doesn't get more, like, kind of liminal than that kind of waiting space. But in those spaces, I'm learning to what it means to truly follow Jesus and hear from him where I have these desires to want to control the outcomes of things, and then moving into these places of, like, learning what does it truly mean to trust Jesus in these spaces that we walk along in and through. And I think we all have those challenges, don't we? You know, waiting for a spouse to change. We don't like to wait. So what do we do? We try to change them ourselves. Or a kid or a friend is going down a destructive path and instead of waiting and praying for them to come back, what do we do? We try to control and manipulate the circumstances because we want security. We want to protect. We want to isolate and hide. And in our waiting, what do we do? We go to work at trying to fix the uncomfortableness of the situation we find ourselves in. Humans do this. We've been doing this for centuries. We want to know, are we safe? Who's in charge? Where are we going? What sort of God is Yahweh? What does Yahweh expect of us? And there's a word to describe this state. It's called liminality. And it's from the Latin word limen, which means threshold. So when you came in here in the back, this doorway, it's a liminal space. When you're in the doorway, that threshold, you're no longer in the cardo hallway and you're no longer in the worship space. You're in between. It's liminal space. An airport, for example, is liminal space. Nobody actually lives there. We're all passing through on our way to somewhere else. 
Carmen Imes uh, says the first people to start talking about liminality were actually anthropologists. They used to describe a stage in rituals that changed someone's status or identity. So sociologically speaking, a liminal space is transitional space where a person lacks social status and is reduced to dependence on others. So for example, a university. University intentionally creates liminality. Students leave home, enter an entirely new environment with a new set of expectations and roles. And with the help of faculty and staff, they scrutinize themselves in order to reshape their identity and discover their vocation. But they're not welcome to stay. Just when they feel like they know the ropes, they are thrust into the real world to begin the process all over again as full-fledged adults. And then graduation is a ritual designed to mark that transition between academia and the outside world. To some extent, it redefines students by qualifying them for new roles in society. And so crossing the stage, they cross the threshold to a new season of life. And so as we move into this summer here at Southview, we're in a season of transition between what has been and what is yet to be. And each of us, we all walk through seasons like this in our personal lives as well. Times that can feel like waiting places. Now, if we were honest, few of us actually like these places, right? We have an inborn desire to seek order and belonging and predictability. So what do God's people do in liminal times like these? How do we walk in these in-between seasons? Because as we read in scripture, it seems to shout that God does his best work in us when we wait. So over the coming six weeks, we're going to journey through the Bible, discovering how our spiritual ancestors navigated liminal times and discerning biblical truths for how we live in our own times of waiting. Because far more than just a season to pass through, it is the workshop of our becoming. The in-between space is the temporary destination that makes us who we are. Because liminal spaces always do this. They change us. That's what they do. So today we're going to explore at Abram, Abraham and Sarah's experience of liminality and allow their story to influence our stories. So if you have your Bibles or your Bible app, you can turn to Genesis chapter 12, where we're going to be picking up the story. Now one word outshines all of the others in helping us understand this journey of life. It is the word promise. God's promise that he will accomplish what he said he will accomplish. Scott McKnight once said, God's promises are as good as God's faithfulness and as gracious as God's love. Now, why does that matter? Well, if we don't get this, if we don't understand and actually believe this, all kinds of problems are going to loom before us. And one of the problems that arise when we cannot or will not wait, we are tempted to shortcut to the promise of God. Because in our minds, a half a promise is better than no promise. Immediate action often only resolves immediate need but can actually set up a chain of consequences far beyond our comprehension. 
The problem, of course, with desperate action is living with the consequences of those actions. So the promise begins when God elbows Abram in the ribs at the ripe old age of 75. I don't think God had to nudge him very hard. He probably would have broke some ribs. But he's in a place not far east and north of today's Aleppo in Syria. And he told him to get all of his stuff together and go off to a special place. So we read this in Genesis chapter 12, verse 1. And friends, this is the word of God. Now, when the Lord said to Abram, go from your country and your kindred and your father's house to the land that I will show you. So three things that he's going to leave. He's going to leave his land. The land in which you dwell is what you're connected to your livelihood, but it's also connected to your roots. And it symbolized not only substance, but belonging for you. He's going to leave his relatives. And I'd be like, thank you, God. This is great. But this is a command to leave his everyday networks. And this was an important part in a tribal society. And then he's going to leave his father's house. Leave the identity of the generations that have come before him. So let's take a moment to translate that into our own current economic and social situation. God comes and says, okay, right today, I want you to leave your house, your jobs, your friends, your church, your relatives, abandon your inheritance, walk away from the equity in your house, and go somewhere where you don't speak the language, you have no business contacts, friends or relatives, and trust God to make a new place for you. That's a big ask. Especially in light of the fact that we have no evidence that there was any prior relationship between Yahweh and Abram. I mean, I assure you that most people in the ancient world and most people today would not have gone. But Abram does. He gathers up his wife, at that time still named Sarai, his nephew Lot and his family and carloads of possessions. They walk down through Damascus and down into the Jordan Rift Valley and they continued over the river into the arid hills north of Jerusalem, down to Shechem. Now, before this long trip, God promised that Abram, that he and Sarai would have children and their children would produce children who would produce children until his descendants would become a great nation. He also promised Abram that he would have a great name and that he would be blessed. And that blessing came through this kind of interesting promise that all people on earth would be blessed through him. So God initially promises this to Abram, a nation-sized family, global reputation, abundance and flourishing, and influence on the whole world. Pretty amazing promise. So in covenantal language, God was going to be Abram's patron. So that anyone who blessed Abram would be blessed by God, and anyone who cursed Abram would be cursed by God. So what happens? Well, Sandra Richter writes, Abram accepts the stipulation of this covenant, obeys, and a great story begins. Now, as we know, going through Genesis, God's words are obviously a central importance in Genesis. They are built into a narrative that is essentially about human action. So it's important to ask the question, what is the connection between the promises and the plot line of the story? Well, David Kleins has defined the theme of the Pentateuch, which is the first five books of the Bible, as the partial fulfillment, which implies also the partial non-fulfillment of the promises to the patriarchs. 
So in other words, the events in Genesis all relate to the promises. Sometimes things happen that show the promises being fulfilled. The patriarchs enjoy divine protection, children are born, pieces of land are acquired. But at other times, there's delays or even setbacks. The first officer doesn't show up at Calgary and you have to wait. This is why Kleins has defined the theme as the partial fulfillment of the promises. And so the problem of childlessness illustrates this very well. The first thing we learn about Sarai is that she is childless in chapter 11, verse 30. Abraham is then promised descendants in 12.2, but years pass and nothing happens. I mean, it's one thing to promise something. It's another thing to bring it to pass. And it is yet another thing to trust the one who made the promise. So as we come to Genesis chapter 15, Abram is now a resident of Canaan. He has grown older, so is his wife, and his faith is beginning to wear a little thin. Abram and Sarai have been trying to make babies for years, but with no luck. Yet that was part of the blessing, and it had been promised to them. So an impatient Abram complained to God. Genesis 15, 3. You have given me no offspring. And then getting a little passive-aggressive. We never do this with God, do we? Abram informed God of his plan. A slave born in my household will be my heir. Now, this is quite common, actually, in the ancient world, when no biological heir appeared, an adoptive one was selected. So in Abram's case, it was the faithful servant, Eliezer of Damascus. And what we see in Abram's statement uncovers his attempt to manipulate an heir in the absence of a child. He does not trust that God will follow through on his promise. He even blames God for his predicament. You have given me no offspring. What does God do? Well, he doesn't react in anger. He reacts with patience. He responds with this exchange in verse 4. God says, This man, Eliezer, shall not be your heir. No one but your very own issue or flesh shall be your heir. Now, Abraham must must have been heard muttering something. You tell me something new. Because God then takes him outside and has a little chat with him. God says, look toward the heaven and count the stars. If you are even able to count them. Then he said to him, so shall your descendants be. Now, God's speech seems to have had a desired effect of reassuring Abraham because in one of the most significant verses in the Old Testament, the narrator tells us that Abraham took a giant step forward because he trusted the great God of the great promises. And it says this in verse 6, And he believed the Lord, and the Lord reckoned it to him as righteousness. Pretty significant step. But by chapter 16, the very next chapter, the anxiety that we saw in Abram in Genesis 15 has evidently grown rather than diminished. It opens with this deeply anxious conversation between Sarai and Abram about the fact that she cannot have children. In 16, verse 2, it says this, And Sarai said to Abram, You see that the Lord has prevented me from bearing children. Go into my slave girl, 
You know what that means, right? Oh, yeah, I'm just making sure we're all on the same page, what that means. That's Old Testament language for sex. Okay. It may be that I shall obtain children by her. And Abram listened to the voice of Sarai. So they'd been landing for 10 years. She's now 75 years old. Sarai and Abram with her had given up hope. Abram and Sarai's solution to the lack of fulfillment of God's promise was to what? Solve it themselves. Because half a promise sure seems better than no promise at all. Her solution was to conceive a child that belonged to Abram, but not through her. Now, on the surface, this sounds like an actual good idea, and Sarai's passing comment kind of directs our attention to what she hopes would happen, that any child born to the slave she owned would become her own child. So they refuse at this point to trust the Lord, and they try to manufacture an heir according to the customs of their day. Surrogacy, which was in fact quite common in the ancient world, made all the more necessary because of the shame that was loaded onto women when they could not conceive. And the real tragedy of this story is that the lives of Abram, Sarai, and Hagar, the slave, and Ishmael were all wrecked by the fact that Abram and Sarai attempted a shortcut to the promise of God. And this story highlights one of the problems that arise when we cannot or will not wait. Abram and Sarai's solution was a good one on the face of it. It solved the problem of not having a child and appeared to make a step towards the fulfillment of God's promise. But the immediate action often only results in immediate need. But it can set up a chain of consequences far beyond our comprehension. And instead, waiting, it draws us into a different way of being. It doesn't rush to easy answers, which often have complex consequences. And it often takes account of not just our own welfare, but the welfare of those around us. You see, waiting involves seeing differently and recognizing that quick answers are not always the best ones in the life in which we live. And so all of this is going on and we get to Genesis chapter 17 and we get this final record of God's interaction between himself and Abram. And it's this final covenant that comes. Abraham is now an old man. His beautiful wife, who was fairly young woman when he answered Yahweh's call back in Genesis 12, is now past childbearing. The bright hopes of earlier day have faded. And in the place of Sarai and Abram's long-awaited child, Hagar, has born Ishmael. Now, this is one of those biblical stories that kind of leaves me amazed at the restraint of the narrator. Because if I pause for just a moment, I can actually feel Abram and Sarai's pain, their disappointment, their empty arms. And I'm sure there's people here listening that know this way more acutely than I could ever understand it. In all this hurt, in the midst of actually trying to honor God who promised but has not delivered. But God does not seem embarrassed at all by this state of affairs. There is no child, 
But Genesis 17 opens with Yahweh's bold reaffirmation of the covenant we've come to know in Genesis 12 and Genesis 15. It says this in verse 1 of chapter 17. When Abram was 99 years old, the Lord appeared to Abram and said to him, I am God Almighty. Walk before me and be blameless. And I will make my covenant between me and you and will make you exceedingly numerous. Then Abram fell on his face and God said to him, as for me, this is my covenant with you. You shall be the ancestor of a multitude of nations. And in the midst of this reaffirmation, God changes their names. Abram, meaning exalted father, becomes Abraham, father of many. And Sarai becomes Sarah. And the name kind of stays the same, meaning princess. And with these changes of name, God repeats and expands his promise of fertility and territory. Abraham and Sarah, after their exchange of names, got far more than they could have imagined. There are almost 7 million Jews Abraham's descendants living in the state of Israel today. Seven million Jews living in the United States today. And another two million of Abraham's descendants living around the world. And it all began when God promised Abram that someday God would make him, this solitary man with a solitary wife, a great nation. So the entire Bible from Genesis to Revelation, is based on this one promise. The God of the Bible is a God who makes promises. This God can be relied upon to make good on those promises. Why? Because God's promises are as good as God's faithfulness and as gracious as God's love. Now, there is, of course, a wonderful ending to this story which we read in Genesis 21. Sarah did bear a son, and she called him laughter, for that's what Isaac means in Hebrew. God took her irony, her bitterness, and her longing and transformed it into the sound of pure joy. And Sarah says in Genesis 21, verse 6, God has brought laughter for me, for everyone who hears will laugh with me. Pretty cool. So to be a great nation, to have many descendants, Abram, Abram and Sarai have to begin with one. And that birth does not come immediately. And the theme of the Abraham story has rightly been identified as centered on his response and threats to the obstacles to that fulfillment of those promises. I mean, he makes this bold move to a new country. But when he gets there, God does not immediately fulfill the promise. How does Abraham respond to these threats and obstacles? Does he respond with faith or with fear? I mean, we've seen in this narrative, he occasionally responds with faith, faith, but more often he doubts. He responds with fear and self-protection. Who does that sound like? Anyone? <laughs> no? Wow. That's what I do all the time. (laughs) 
Self-protection, fear, control. Because we too have received promises from God. He will be with us during our lives. He will come again. He'll bring his people to that wonderful city that's talked about in Revelations 21 and 22. But we too, like Abraham, are constantly challenged by threats and obstacles to the fulfillment of those promises. Is God really with me? Because the disappointment of pain of life seems to provide counter evidence to that fact. Doubts plague us. How do we respond when it looks like God is not following through on his promise of an abundant life, a wonderful life? I mean, in the first place, we need to question the impression that many of us were given or gave at the time we became Christians because nowhere in the Bible is there a promise that those who turn over their lives to Christ will have a problem-free, happy-filled life. We are told that we'll experience joy, but it is joy in the midst of suffering. As Jesus put it in John 16, I have said this to you so that in me you may have peace. In the world you face persecution, but take courage. I have conquered the world. So how do we have joy in the midst of suffering? We have joy because God is with us through the pain. We have joy because God is with us through the pain. God comes to both Abram and Sarai in order to reassure them of his loving presence and his commitment, his ongoing commitment to fulfill the promise in spite of appearances. And while we reflect on Abraham and Sarah's faith journey in our own, it's important to realize that the opposite of faith is not doubt. It's unbelief. Because if we're certain about something, we do not need faith. And paralyzing doubt can actually hurt faith, but the reflective Christian will often struggle with doubt in this world and in this life. And as Daniel Taylor points out in his book, The Myth of Certainty, certainty can only be achieved by a kind of blind acceptance of authority that suppresses questions and doubts. On the other hand, though, doubts that lead to an avoidance of commitment to the object of our faith, in our case, Jesus, is unhealthy. So here at Southview, we want to create a culture where healthy, faith-growing doubt can exist and be expressed. We want that here in our community. And so I want to pass on a great resource. If this is a place where you're walking in in your own life, it's called After Doubt. It's a book by A.J. Swoboda, How to Question Your Faith Without Losing It. Uh, you can just take a picture of that or write it down. Actually, I just purchased two copies. We have two copies in our resource center. So if you kind of want to read a really great book, you can go check it out. Our resource center is open every weekend during our services. Uh, Linda and her team who run our resource center do a great job. And so if you haven't checked out our resource center, it's right across our hallway here. Lots of great books. But these, I have two copies of this book. Uh, so if you're kind of figuring out what does doubt look like in your faith, uh, I would highly recommend uh, this resource for you. But two things I think we can take away. First, God does not often choose the easiest route, but rather the ones that will demonstrate his power and bring him the most glory. That's generally how God is going to operate. And second, along the way, God will provide 
safety and encouragement as we journey with him through life. Because trust is not automatic. God does not expect it to be. He patiently works on Abraham and Sarah's behalf until they can see that he is worthy of their confidence. And God's guidance and reassurance along the way helps them cultivate their trust in him. Because the journey is God's classroom. He has work to do in his people that can only be done in a state of dislocation in liminal space. Because friends, it is in our waiting where God does his best work in us. And so here's what I want to invite us to do. Okay? So get your phone out or your notebook out. I'm going to put a slide up here. We're going to keep the slide up for a little bit. This is our to-do. What are we going to do? Okay? So over the next six weeks, um, these are the next uh, six-week topics that we're going to be walking through in our While We Wait series. And so you have the dates there. So each week, we want you just to read that passage And we want you to do this in life on life. We believe in walking together so you can do this with your family or your small group. Each week, we want you to take that passage. We want you to ask these four questions. Okay? What does this story tell me about God? What does this story tell me about people or myself? And if this is God's word for my life, how will I obey it? And in this journey, who am I going to tell of what God's teaching me along the way? Okay, so this is our invitation of what we're going to do. We're going to journey together and we're going to discover how God is shaping our ancestors through their stories and helping us apply it in our context today as God works in our lives. Because ultimately the story of Abraham and Sarah is a story of waiting. And throughout this story, we encounter a God who stands by pleading with his people to stop and realize that the goal is not in fact the most important thing. Much more important than the goal is the presence of God. Much more important than what you're waiting for is the presence of God. Much more important than what Southview's next senior pastor is going to look like is the presence of God. Walking with us on the way and helping us to realize that waiting is more important than achieving any goal that's set before us. But the reality is, so often, God is present in our world, but we fail to recognize it. That's why Elizabeth Barrett Browning summed this up in her poem, Aurora Lee. Earth's crammed with heaven, and every common bush afire with God, but only he who sees takes off his shoes. The rest sit round it and pluck blackberries. I mean, this can be true for uh, those of us who want to perceive God's presence and for those who don't. It can be that despite our best intentions, shimmers of divine presence are overlooked or misinterpreted all around us. We see something that proclaims God's presence in our midst, but fail to recognize it for what it truly is. And that's why part of the purpose of telling and retelling and telling again of the history of salvation throughout the Old Testament into the New is to train us, is to train us to recognize what it looks like. So that when it happens again, when God shows up into those spaces, we will not only notice his presence, 
but understand what he's trying to do in our lives. To build trust in the one who makes promises, who will never leave us nor forsake us in whatever we journey through in life. So God invites us to this journey over these next six weeks as we discover together how God wants to shape us and form us. So let's pray to that end. Heavenly Father, we thank you for uh, this weekend, and many of us are in seasons of waiting. Yeah, perhaps they're waiting for a job or uh, for healing for something or for restoration in a relationship. Even us as a church, Father, here at Southview, wisdom to know where we should go next. And that place of waiting is a place we are all familiar with. And we know that even though it's a familiar place and one we know well, we often grow weary in our waiting. Sometimes our hearts we know can grow heavy with worry and doubt. Sometimes we might wonder if God's forgotten about us or even given up on us. And we cry out even as the psalmist did, how long, O Lord, will you forget me forever? How long will you hide your face from me? And deep down, we wonder, how long will I actually be in this situation? How will I be stuck in this place of waiting forever? Why am I even here to begin with? What's happening, God? But most of all, we wonder, God, where are you? But even as we pray that we know you are right where you've always said you would be. You've never left us. You said you'll never forsake us. So God, grant us the joy that comes from knowing you and being known by you. Fill our hearts with gospel joy. Strengthen us by your word. And may the words of the psalmist be true of us. I wait for the Lord. My soul waits. And in his word, I hope. Jesus, by your spirit, help us to remain faithful in our places of waiting. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. And all of this, whatever season we are in, it leads us to the high point of our service, this table. When Jesus gathered with his closest friends in that upper room, he gave thanks and he took the bread and he said, this bread is my body which is broken for you. And every time you eat of it, you remember me. And then again after supper, he took the cup and he said, this cup is a new covenant in my blood. Every time you drink, you do this in remembrance. And so, Father, as we come to this meal now, we pray that you would feed us by your spirit. Give us strength to endure all that is before us this week. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. So I invite you to remove uh, that top little thing to get to your bread. I just want you to hold it. I'm just going to read a few psalms, and then I'm going to invite you to read a few with me in just a moment. But just as you hold this, hear these words. Let the light of your face shine on us, O Lord. You have put gladness in my heart more than when their grain and wine abound. I will give thanks to the Lord with my whole heart. I will tell of all of your wonderful deeds. I will be glad and exult in you. I will sing praise to your name, O Most High. The needy shall not always be forgotten, 
nor the hope of the poor perish forever. I trust in your steadfast love. My heart shall rejoice in your salvation. I will sing to the Lord because he has dealt bountifully with me. And let's read these last ones all together. Let's read. The Lord is my chosen portion and my cup. Therefore, my heart is glad and my soul rejoices. My body also rests secure. Together, from you comes my praise in the great congregation. The poor shall eat and be satisfied. All those who seek him shall praise the Lord. And this one. Oh, taste and see that the Lord is good. Happy are those who take refuge in God. Friends, the body of Christ was broken for you. Receive from him. And we take the cup. This cup represents the blood. Just open up that top. And as you hold it, hear these words from some more Psalms. Give thanks for God's steadfast love. For the Lord satisfies the thirsty and fills the hungry with good things. What shall I return to the Lord for all God's goodness to me? I will lift up the cup of salvation and call on the name of the Lord. Open to me the gates of righteousness, that I may enter through them and give thanks to the Lord. Oh, give thanks to the Lord who is good, whose steadfast love endures forever. It is the Lord who remembers us in our low estate, whose steadfast love endures forever. For he is good. He is good. He is good. So in your waiting, know the steadfast love of your Father in heaven. Why? Because the blood of Christ was poured out for you. Receive from him. Amen. Well, I invite you to stand. For our closing benediction, our, obviously our gathering isn't over. Opportunity to hang out after our service. And before you even leave your section, maybe it would be just good to just go up to somebody and just introduce yourself. And you do it simply by this. You put out your hand or a fist bump, still post-COVID, I don't know where people are at, and say, my name is, and you fill in the blank. Pretty simple, isn't it? And then you can go out in the cardo, get some coffee, hang out at the tables, go outside, sunny out, get to know other people, be together. So as you go into this week, whatever it holds for you, in all of your seasons of waiting, may the Lord bless you and keep you. May the Lord make his face shine upon you and be gracious to you. May the Lord look upon you with favor and give you peace. In the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Go introduce yourself. I don't see you. I'm watching.